Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Initiative's Tribe Radio Show. I'm one of your hosts, Rock and Roll, along with... Uh, that Zero Guy. That Zero Guy. And we want to welcome look, you um, to our show. <laughs> that guy. Happy New Year. It's a new Happy year. Happy New Year. Woo! Glad it's... to see you guys are all here. You all made it. Yeah. It's... <laughs> If it's ever going to be any year that changes things, it's going to be 13, let me tell you. Yeah, lucky 13 is what I'm calling yep. it. So, yeah. That's right. This is, um, this is Tribe Radio, everybody. This is uh, this is a show where uh, we discuss damn near anything to bring together the tribes of the world interested in changing it for the better. Um, if, you, if you're a first-time listener, just know that this show is pretty much anything good. Anything helpful, we do it. Um, we don't turn any subject down, and eventually we're going to be getting into some fun stuff. Today in particular, creativity and progression, something a little different than our normal, uh, you know, how to, like, beat ass and, and chew bubblegum kind of thing. <laughs> and, but, you know, what? I think that's, I think it's perfect timing. It's the new year, and uh, everybody, creativity boring. is important. All right, you know what? It looks like Bug loaded up some new sounds, and since he's sitting right next to me, I'm probably going to end up punching him in the arm. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. I just want to just want to jump in and say, um, before we introduce our our guest Alex Peak, um, creator of Code Hero, I just want to say creativity. Just to just to start us off, is a beacon to make a cause. Exponentially more profound. And with that said, I want to welcome Alex Peak. Alex, how you doing? I'm doing awesome. It's wonderful to be with you guys tonight. Awesome, man. How you feeling? Uh, New Year's, New Year's, new stuff. You know, the actual New Year's Eve was pretty uneventful for me. I was mostly just happy to be with the friends and loved ones that I was. But yeah. uh, I, I know that for my whole life, I've been looking forward to 2013 because finally all of the nonsense prophecies will be out of the way and we can sort of get back to making the actual future with our actions rather than an expectation that they're going to magically work out. Yeah. Hey, guys, I've got, I've got to interrupt here. I don't. I don't want to uh, interrupt Alex. We're getting a really big feedback problem. So somebody's got... Yeah. Um, their radio turned up in the background, and so we're getting that little bit of delay, unfortunately. Uh, mine's down. Alex, you have the radio on? Um, I shouldn't. Nope, definitely not. I mean, I have headphones plugged in my computer anyways. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be out visible. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Everything's working um, before. I don't hear it. Anyway, let's uh let's let's keep going. Um real quick we have to uh go into talking about the show, um the, the audio trivia show. Um, which is called Dear God, what is that thing? And we're gonna play since nobody got the the the, the answer last time, uh we have to reveal it. Bug, do you wanna play it and reveal it for us? Sure do. Dear God, what is Hang that on. thing? <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, here we go. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was that's that's this week's. We need last week's. He needs last week's. This is this is what happens when uh <laughs> We're still getting feedback, so it's probably on our end. Uh, 
Okay, that was last week's, and what was the answer to that? The answer to that... Jesus. We, hang on a second, Zero. Two seconds, technical difficulties. The answer to that was a Christmas story, uh, which was just in time for Christmas. Uh, this week's uh, noise is going to be... <laughs> and again, if you guys want to call in at the end of the show, we'll be taking calls in the last uh, six or seven minutes. Uh don't write it in the chat or someone else will get your prize. Um, right now, unfortunately, we have to uh, temper one both last week. So me and Rock uh, were assigned a, <laughs> a joint line to read, and this is, this is going to be fun. It would have been a lot worse, but I, I had to cut it down to, to only one line each because that's, that's the rules, you know. So I guess, Rock, are you ready? I am. Okay, I'm gonna go first. Ready? Okay. I'm a I'm a blonde bimbo girl in the fantasy world. Dress me up, make it tight. I'm your dolly. You're my doll. Rock and roll. Feel the glamour in pink. Kiss me here. Touch me there. Hanky panky. We hate you, Temper. By yeah. the way. You're fired. <laughs> You're fired. That's it. You're out. You're fired from life. Okay, I don't like this game anymore. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, I see we... Uh, it's time to kick in. Uh, Alex, do you just want to go ahead and tell us all about what you're doing and, and your ideas for the world, man? Because I really... Um, I'm excited to hear them. Let's go. Okay. Um, so, a long time ago, I was playing games, and I'm hearing echo. Is that somebody else echoing me? Is anyone on speakerphone right now? I'm definitely not. Okay, I'll try again. A uh, long, long time ago, I was playing games, and the game I was introduced to by my brother is a game called Dungeons and & Dragons, and it pretty much rocked my world. It was the most imaginative, creative thing. And for a lot of people today who think that they've played role-playing games before, like Warcraft is sort of a role-playing game, uh, Mirrors, uh, like, um, you know, the Bioware, like, those are sort of role-playing games. But because they're played on the computer, it's, it's easy to not know that once upon a time, and still to this day, role-playing games truly mean you are in character using your imagination to create a world with a small group of people that transcends any computer game's ability to have dice or stats or, or you know, charts of tables that you put in a strategy guide or on some wiki page. Because when you're role-playing, you truly are creating the world. And the second thing I was introduced to was computer programming, and I thought, wow, this is incredible. I can make the kinds of games that I love. I can make something like Dungeons & Dragons. But what I found out was that there were reasons why no one had pulled that off yet. There were reasons why there weren't games that gave you full creativity as a player to create the game while you're playing it. And that's just because making video games is really hard. Computer programming is really hard. And yet, I felt like there should be a way to make learning and using programming and making games easier to the point where the love of games that I and our whole generation shares, like 97% of all people uh, below 20 play video games, and they usually continue to play. If they love games that much, it should be possible to introduce programming through games and get back to a Dungeons & Dragons-like creativity where if you have an idea, you can build games about it. And the, the merger of the engineering skill of computer programming and the pure creativity of like being a creative writer or being an improvisational actor and making stories together could meet in the middle someday. And those are the two main influences that led to making Codegraph. Um, the third was a book by Neil Stevenson, which is called The Diamond Age, or A Young Lady's Illustrated Primer. And what The Diamond Age introduced was the idea of a fairy tale book that was disguising what was actually like an artificial intelligence mentor game. And so this mentoring game, when you gave it to a young person, would start off reading fairy tales to them, just like bedtime stories. And so you'd learn to read. And then you'd start to talk back just by asking questions about the story you understand or deciding what the character should do next. 
it would segue into a role-playing game. And the culmination of the primer, as it was called, or the primer, was the experience of learning computer programming through a story about a castle called Castle Turing, Turing being the name of one of the founders of computer science. So when I read that book, because like the hundredth person had recommended it to me, I understood why they were suggesting it. It's because the idea that I had in my head of a technical implementation of a game world that would teach you programming was good, but you really need a powerful story for it to, to stick with people. And so the story that I developed for Kojiro is a much more lightweight story than the beautiful uh, book that the Diamond Age um, tells. But instead, just focusing on creating something more like Hogwarts. So how many of us, when we read Harry Potter, some of us didn't like it, but a lot of us, even if we sort of felt like it, you know, we're, we're too old for this kind of stuff or it shouldn't be our kind of thing or it's too, too you know, light and happy and fluffy or something, but you get into it because it's a school like no other. It's a kind of like a magical marine boot camp for those who, you know, sort of like dream of being like a, you know, a, a hero. They are often drawn to the idea of going to the military or some other elite school that will turn them into a hero. And that's kind of what Hogwarts represents. So that's what we've created in Code Hero is a game that teaches you how to make games within the world of Code Hero so that you can make games that could teach everything else. And if we all learn how to make games, and if we can add those games to a sort of a collective tree of all the different possible games that could teach all the different possible things, it becomes like a Wikipedia of gaming. And instead of just having things you could read but not really sink your teeth into and learn from, you start to not just have all knowledge accessible like the Internet and Wikipedia, but all knowledge playable, like a tree of games that you could just go from game to game. They, they said once upon a time squirrels could cross the United States without touching the ground, going from tree to tree. And I think that we're, we're headed towards a world where as we're learning computer programming, it's really a gateway into all the other forms of creativity. And if you like to think of programming um, right now as kind of like a specialized discipline, a few people learn, tends to be associated with people who are into math or other engineering type things, and turn that on its head and say, no, it's more like the Renaissance definition of a human being, that a human is a person who sort of is the heir to all the fruits of knowledge to which human civilization has, has furnished us. And that means being artistic, uh, being creative, being mathematical, being scientific. And once upon a time, people were just curious about all of these things, and there weren't these really strict boundaries um, and disciplines that you could you know, only go so far in a very specialized area. And that's what we'd like to do with Kojiro, is use it as a starting point. Introduce people to the idea not just that programming is a new part of what it means to be literate, but that there's all the other parts, too, that maybe have been, been neglected, like the arts and the sciences, are going to be the next to benefit from what some people call gamification, but it's really much more profound. And it really is not about just giving people points or incentivizing with, with shallow gamification. It's really about recognizing that we are heroes in what is ultimately the greatest game that there is, the highest possible stakes, and that by making a game around achievement and aspiration and creativity, we're actually just trying to simulate the way the world really is, and that is that we're in it to win it, and creativity is how you sort of show up for hero school. Nice. I. I would definitely say it's a form of communication. It's it, imagination, creativity is probably the, the very deepest form of communication. And I think you're outlining that with what you're doing here. Yeah, the idea of of communicating. Um, if you if you trace human history back to the beginning of history itself, the very first writing, um, you, you start to see a history of code, not just as computer programming, but as a series of different codes that humans evolved to improve their communication with each other. And if you trace back, so if you start with computer programming now, right? So once upon a time, you had to enter all the code into the computer directly. And all the code had to be ones and zeros or in punch cards or some other really difficult format. So people found a better language to make it easier to write code in. And that led to compilers and you know, languages that are easier for humans to write in. Well, if you go all the way back, you really start with the universe needing a way to basically contain information in a reusable format. 
Um, and this, this might sound really far out there to talk about the history of programming, starting with the Big Bang. But they say we're made of star stuff, but stars were made of Big Bang stuff. And big, the Big Bang, in the sort of Tao Te Ching, you know, creation myth uh, sense of, of things, was essentially a, a singularity starting point. Everything was one when it first emerged from the Bang, which is all hydrogen, which is just a single, a single element. And when the hydrogen accreted into disks with more density, it was able to finally get galaxies and stars, which is where fusion happened. And you had, like, splitting from, like, a zero to uh, hydrogen and helium, which is, like, zeros and ones. And when the first, um, when the first Big Bang, not Big Star, Big Bang, um, supernovas happened, you had the multiplying of the number <coughs> of symbols with which nature could construct matter, with which one element of the, you know, 216, I think it is, elements, could then combine with each other. And that gave rise to planets where this whole complex language of different physical structures was able to combine into biological organisms. Uh, biological organisms were able to evolve brains. And brains were a way of storing information in between generations. So in a single generation, one organism could learn all sorts of things. And when the human being put pen to paper, or it was actually uh, a read to um, papyrus or to a clay tablet, what they did was create what we now call code. Because they took this successive challenge the universe kept figuring out ways to innovate in. The universe kept finding a way to record information in more and more rapid evolving forms. And suddenly, you got a form which, on paper, you could make abstract symbols you could be what we now call creative. And we started to do things that animals don't do nearly to the extent that humans do, like animals will create a nest which, which has beautiful uh, decorations to attract a member of their species to mate. And that, that is a form of creativity where they're showing their, their fitness through their, their work. But humans, we have created a civilization where not only do we actually use creativity as a language to you know, solve all of our uh, sort of collaborative problems. But in a way, it is the battleground. It is the, the ultimate power. It isn't just a form of, of beauty, but it's also essentially what makes a government in charge or what makes a corporation um, successful is their, their ability to communicate and make tools that allow other people to communicate. So in, in that sense, to be literate, means to speak the language of the land. And if the language of the land means whatever you need to, to be in a competitive and, and kind of with it state to be able to have a say over your life, then surely when English came around as a world standard, everyone realized to be literate, everyone's got to learn English. And now that JavaScript and the web browser is where people spend a good bulk of their time, so many people are waking up and saying, wow, you know, I didn't ever think of myself as a programmer type of person but I just want to be able to make something if I have an idea or I want to understand the things that I'm using and not just be a consumer. And so that's why code is sort of like the front line in the sort of 13.7 billion year old evolution of, of communication and information technology. It didn't start with humans. It actually started with the universe. And what's crazy is that right now we're looking at a change from Creativity being a class of people, like, you know, the people who would say that went to art school or, or architecture or, or design products or write books, to one where everyone is writing and making videos and doing radio shows, this being a perfect example, we're, we're almost going to an all-creator future. Or certainly one where to make a good living, that's the, the most promising prospect that people have. And so it, the, it asks the question, can we afford to let things like programming continue to be niche or, or kind of small community uh, skills, or do we have to actually figure out how to teach everybody things which were once the realm of, like, physicists or engineers? And uh, I, I think that it's, it's happening now. That's funny because um, I, I am kind of – I think of creativity lately as um, I see so many selfish creators, and I, I feel like we're moving away from – uh, being the culture of doers and more of a culture of uh, commentators, I feel like art, a lot of creativity is re is very much uh, commentary, and there's not a lot of people who really 
trying to change the world anymore. But what you're saying really kind of gives me hope because what you're saying is that we're in kind of like a limbo right now, and the next step is everyone creates to help the world. Like everyone creates to get the things done that we can't seem to get done any other way. And that's that's really interesting and very, very helpful for me. Um, lately to me, yeah, it's, it, pretty, it's kind of like visibility. Um, in many ways, the, the activities that people do when they first start using the creative mediums that they get their hands on do look like kind of beginner stuff or, or just commentating on what other people have unearthed. Um, the blogosphere is full of people who are amateur writers. And the, the maker movement, which is a, a major theme I'd like to talk about tonight, is, is full of very accessible project ideas and types of sort of first efforts by people who um, at, at first they can't achieve the kind of the dream thing that maybe that they would like to work on for their whole career. So they, they pick something that they could do that kind of gets the ball rolling. And, you know, my own first project that I soldered, to take one example, a lot of my friends do electronics, and they are learning to do electronics in hackerspaces. And for those who don't know hackerspaces, um, if you go to a website called hackerspaces.org and you click Active Hackerspaces, you will see a world map that will blow your mind with almost 1,300 hackerspaces each one of them being a unique community-created sort of place for all art, all technology, a place where all are welcome, usually all the time. A lot of them are 24 hours. Some of them have certain you know, hours unless you become a member and get a key to come in at any hour. But these become sort of like the school or the library was meant in the, in the earlier era of kind of mass education and mass information. But instead of being an industrial model where everyone gets the same school and it's mandated by the government, it's more like a, a research laboratory combined with a coffee shop because no one's going to tell you what to do there, but it's full of tools. And you don't even have to know what you want to do to go there. You can just hang out and, you know, drink coffee and meet people. And Yeah, they're pretty sweet. I've been to one uh, called Alpha One over in Brooklyn. It's pretty cool. Oh, yeah, I tried to visit Alpha One while I was in New York, but I didn't have time to, to make it by there. But I did get to visit MIT Resistor, which is one of the first hacker spaces, too. Yeah, that's that's a really cool. I've been there, too. Um, Alpha One, I, I can tell a quick little cool story you guys might want to hear. Uh, uh, they had, they own an adjacent building, like right next to the building where the, the Alpha, I think the old Alpha One was in, in the basement. One day, the owners of the building were trying to get the door open, and I guess they had welded it shut in two places uh, to the, the next building. And I actually ended up kicking the door open, and in this building... <laughs> There was a freaking DeLorean. Wow. Yeah, we all got to like basically, you know, pet a DeLorean. Because I mean, what else do you do with you know, pet it and make ooh ah noises at it? You know what I mean? What's so. <laughs> that time travel? You know. Yes, like there's a lot of crazy cars at that place. Anyway, go ahead. That's awesome. Um, you know the the hackerspace movement is the one thing that I can say for sure every single place in the world needs and that I'm pretty confident we'll have within the near future if they don't already have several like New York and, and San Francisco and, and um, Oakland each have many hackerspaces now. So the, the reason that it's just sort of almost like an inevitable trend and the reason that it grows so naturally is it just comes out of a human being's innate desire to have a place it's not just your home where maybe you have roommates or maybe you don't, maybe you feel isolated or maybe, you know, you hang out with people there a lot. But a lot of people go to college, for example, to meet people. And there's this really fundamental reason why people move to bigger cities and go to more interesting colleges. It's because they're looking to connect with other human beings and get inspired and get introduced to people and classes and things that are just expanding their horizons. And up until now, and in fact right now um, it's becoming a crisis, the financial burden and the exclusivity uh, of the, you know, the, the admissions for most of the best schools in the world have made them a, really a class distinction between people who got that kind of upbringing and people who either didn't or hacked an upbringing of their own. And the people that were hacking their upbringing uh, were people who were doing even things like unschooling, where they didn't even go to high school. They actually created their own you know, sort of curriculum with their friends. Um, a friend of mine, Dale Stevens, does a thing called uncollege.org. And uncollege is suggesting that even for higher education, a lot of people 
are finding that the colleges that they're even getting into, even when they have the money and the access, aren't actually meeting all of their needs or for them the debt involved in uh, going to school for quite a few years and not being able to pay that student loan without having to go into a job that they don't like is an unacceptable trade-off. And so it's not that college isn't worth it or that college is a bad idea. And in many ways, college is like the perfect example of what people most want out of life to find their way. But it's just expensive and hard to get for a lot of people. And so what a hackerspace is is a, a guaranteed way to just put down roots in your community and say, we're going to keep accumulating members, and we're going to keep accumulating square footage and doubling in size every you know, two years or so, which seems to be the trend. And the hackerspace that, that I first arrived at when I got to San Francisco, when Noisebridge was in an alleyway, was you know, a few thousand square feet. Now it's like 8,000 square feet. Um, the can hackerspace... I put in quick, and can we just address that word hackerspace? Because a lot of people are afraid of the word hacker nowadays, and they think it means oh, yeah. that it doesn't. So yeah. you could just outline it in like a second. In a nutshell, I, I give the definition that a hackerspace is a creative community center that's free to all. Uh, and I, I mentioned that some of them have memberships, but almost all of them let people come in free at least part of the week. And when people think of the word hacker, they might not realize that it primarily means creativity with technology. They might think that it is usually used in the media to describe people breaking into computers. Well, breaking into computers is a very creative use of technology. <laughs> And there's a reason that people who are creative with breaking into computers are also the people that invent the most innovative computer technology. To pick one example, uh, Wozniak, who built the Apple computer. Wozniak and Steve Jobs' first product before they made the Apple computer was a device to hack the phone system to get free phone calls. And when they first started doing it, it wasn't illegal because no one knew it was possible. And so hacking tends to be on that frontier, those who do security and, and, like, discovering the boundaries or the limits or the security flaws and stuff. They're on the edge of what's possible. And so it's usually not illegal when they first discover it. And what they're actually figuring out is what's, what's so crazy that people haven't thought of it. And in the, in the search for flaws, for example, they get those flaws patched and they make our computer more secure so that if you had a dictatorship that was trying to spy on your email, your software is pretty reliable now, thanks to the work of those hacker hackers. Yeah. But what they do in their spare time is not just break into computers. A lot of time, that's like their day job. It's the way that they, they make money. But they, they had this culture of creative technological innovation, and it led them to create, way back about 30 years ago in uh, Germany, a network of, of centers, which they called Cast Communications Club, or CCC. And I had the privilege and, and, um, and luck to be able to go to CCC, uh, the Congress, which is their national meeting, um, for two years, uh, 2063 and 28. And this, this New Year's was just their 29th. And what that is is 29 years plus of a community of people who said, we're not just people that break into computers. We're people that care about computers as a force for good in the world and that believe that computers can change everybody's lives and that they wanted to create a community around that, which now has broken out of the, the stereotype of breaking stuff and has really created a mass movement around the world of making stuff, which is often referred to as the maker movement or maker spaces. But I, I still like to use the word hackerspace because, you know, hey, I, I grew up wanting to be a hacker. I think a lot of young people do. And when they find out that hacker means more than breaking stuff, the, the appeal of creativity is even greater when they realize that's what hackers really do. And so I don't think hacker is a bad word. And in some cases, you have to be politically correct about it and avoid using it around certain people. But I, I say use the word hackerspace whenever possible. Yeah. We actually had a hacker in this, in this house, in the HQ, a couple of years ago that is responsible for inventing this nifty little invention that can turn off any TV. Uh, are you referring to Mitch Altman? Yeah. So Mitch Altman, uh, yeah, he was one of the founders of Noisebridge Hackerspace and is a mentor to me and many people in the hacker community. And, oh, yeah, it's a perfect example of mischief, but not to cause harm. Because, you know, the, the, um, the TV Begun that Mitch invented, if you Google it, you can, you can get a TV Begun. And when you go to the gym, let's say, this is like one of the places that I always used to encounter annoying television. I'm in the changing room. And there's some horrible, 
like news anchors saying things I really don't want to be hearing about when I'm trying to purify my mind and body and better myself. You know, I just don't want it around. And I feel perfectly within my rights to turn a TV off. Almost everybody in that locker room is happy to hear off so they can get back to, you know, doing their workout. And it's a little mischievous. Uh, Some people at CES one year, I think it was Gizmodo, infamously shut all the TVs off that they could at at CES. That wasn't very cool. Uh, for the for the people involved, it, you know, it just caused a lot of havoc. But uh, you know, what what hackerspaces are is a way to take what we currently have in the maker movement and the hacker movement and you know the geek movement, which is you know, I don't know the numbers, but if you take twelve hundred to thirteen hundred spaces, and if you imagine that each one of those has a community of somewhere between a hundred and a thousand people, um, depending on their size. But let's just say a hundred to be really conservative. So let's say you got about 12,000, 12, you know, 20,000 people. Uh, that group of people is living a life that is quite possibly the best life they could imagine, in part because they have this community that, like all the people I live with, all my roommates I met through Noisebridge Hackerspace, almost all the people I hang out with, if they're not frequent members of Noisebridge, they're at least part of that community. And that that privilege that you have is kind of like the privilege that some people get when they get to go to, you know, Harvard or, or Stanford, except it doesn't cost any money fundamentally. I mean, $20 a month memberships, which are often optional, and 20, you know, 20 to 80 depending on the space and, and how much you can afford. But you don't have to even pay. If you, if you can't afford, you can still participate in the hackerspace. So unlike privilege, which is expensive, hackerspaces are a privilege which spreads as fast as you can spread it. And so... That's essentially what we're trying to do with code as well. We're trying to take away the barriers that people experience when they learn programming, and we're trying to take away the barriers that people experience after they start or when they want to start learning programming to find a community of people who are like them and who they can do other types of creativity with, not just computer programming. So for those who who want to see a world that is radically different from the one that we live in and just better in all the ways that exist in a few places but need to spread, spreading hackerspaces, and spreading code, I think, go hand in hand. And I think that if people want to know what kind of games that they should make um, or what kind of things they should create as as artists to have a heroic impact, I personally believe that one of the most important things Code Hero can accomplish besides introducing people to programming is to shepherd them through a hackerspace to take that interest further. And other creative disciplines, other projects, other initiatives that people are doing if you adopt the hackerspace as one of your hubs where you meet or, or have classes, and if you even spread that so that at more than one hackerspace, a type of class that you create is actually happening across the country, across the world, that's what Mitch did. He, he started teaching electronics classes, and every hackerspace has electronics classes now. And they were probably you know, going to do that without his influence, but he teaches thousands of electronics classes and he's taught them in hundreds of different hackerspaces. I, I can't count how many he's been to. It, it, it's hilarious that you mentioned him because he is one of the, what I call the two Tyler Durdens of hackerspaces. Um, and, and another person I wanted to mention who's like Mitch, who you know, travels around spreading them, is a guy named Bilal. And he started a thing called GEMSI. If you go to GEMSI.org, uh, that's Global Entrepreneurship and Makerspace Initiative, which, hey, that sounds kind of like the New York Initiative, right? Yeah, in a way, Bilal is a superhero, you know, just like Mitch. Um, I think because I, don't, I know that name. I'm not sure where I know that name from. I've definitely heard that name, and I might have met this guy. He's all over the world, and I'm sure that you've had an opportunity to meet him. If you haven't already, he's, he's going to be in a neighborhood near you because everywhere I would go, Every person I would talk to in the hackerspace movement about the future of hackerspaces would say the same thing. They would say, have you met Bill Al? They would say, who is this person? Is it like Tyler Jordan? And I, I, Alex, I was there's another amazing person that I know that you know. And uh, he's the guy that was behind the 20 under 20 thing. Can you talk a little bit about Elon Musk? Oh, yeah. So I actually don't know Elon personally, but I am involved in the, the 20 under 20, um, which is a, a fellowship for bright young people with ideas that can't wait. And I really love the phrasing of an idea that can't wait because if you have an idea like that, you know. And when you hear about the Teal Fellowship, you know. You're like, why haven't I heard about this before? Why didn't I hear about this last year? 
like I'm stuck in grade 10 and I have to go through another like year of school because I didn't know about this last year when I started my project. And someone is like, what, you're in grade 10 and you want to do a crazy thing? And if you have an idea like that, it's not, it's not just like, well, you should go to a few more years of school or you should climb the corporate ladder or you have to, you know, like um, learn the ropes or pay your dues. It's like you do need to find mentors and you do need to be very humble to learn all the things you need to learn to, to make a big idea happen. But time is not the thing to waste in doing so. And so what the 20 under 20 fellowship represents is the idea that if you want to change the world and you're wherever you're at with your school process, whether you're, you know, obviously you have to be under 20 years old for the fellowship, um, but there are people who are involved in the community or influenced by the fellowship, even who are past 20, but they're still participating because what the community represents is this moment where you say, okay, I could either go to school for four years, like my parents are willing to pay for or can't afford to, whatever your situation may be, or I could start this technology company to make like augmented reality wearable computing operating system interfaces, which is like one of the coolest themes that I heard. I met a number of people in the 20 under 20, uh, like my friend Thomas Summers, um, who is who's doing that kind of stuff. And if you have that kind of idea, it's like if you wait two years, Google or Apple or whoever is gonna is gonna steal your thunder. It's, it's sort of a time sensitive thing. And so what they do is they they give you like hundred thousand dollars if you get picked as one of the twenty. But if you apply and you don't get picked, you should still do it. It's, that's the key. Is even if you decide to spend a little bit more time in school than you would if you had the money to afford to to just start your project, it's the spirit of entrepreneurship. And Elon Musk is is one of the most uh, awesomely inspiring entrepreneurs in this way because Elon says about starting a company if you like the idea if he says starting companies is like chewing glass and staring into the abyss if that sounds good to you then you should might start want a company or might want to start a company um, and that sounds a little off-putting or discouraging like he's saying it's a terrifically scary thing but some people really want that challenge some people, they read Harry Potter, they read Lord of the Rings, they, whatever their heroic fiction that they thrive on is, whatever they're a fan of, and they say, I'm a hero too. Damn it, I've got an idea. It's going to change the world. And it doesn't involve doing kung fu like in the Matrix. It involves doing code fu or, you know, or cleverness or business or something innovative where if I put the energy in and code this thing and make this thing happen, I just need to find the people who will back me. And all 20 to 20 is is a, a way to get young people a backing to do that. Um, and there's, there's other things, too. There's actually another one we're checking out called Upstart. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, Upstart, I think, yeah, I'm super familiar with that. Basically, Upstart invests in people rather than companies. So if you're, like, brilliant, have a huge idea, and need that 100 grand or whatever it is to, to get your idea off the ground, they don't require you to, like, form a company and give them the whole, like, spiel like a company they basically invest in your career and then you give them a percentage of like your future earnings or something, but they don't take equity in your company. Um, and, you know, there's a really big bubble and disconnect between the universe of entrepreneurship and the universe of finding a job or figuring out what you're good at, which is where everyone starts. And when the average person hears about entrepreneurship, they they're intrigued because they know that there are rags to riches stories. They know that there are you know, people like who dropped out of school and started companies, but they usually dropped out of Harvard. You know, these are not usually people that they can, if they don't feel very confident in their own abilities, that they can relate to like Bill Gates and, and Mark Zuckerberg both dropped out of Harvard. <laughs> They're kind of hard to, to know if you're as smart as they are, or if you have what it takes to take that kind of risk. Right. Yeah. But American uh, you know, entrepreneurship and American kind of, you know, sort of do-it-yourself, get-things-done spirit um, didn't start with only, you know, like rich, famous people who had tons of college education. It started with a kind of like a homesteader, risk-taker mentality of people who started smaller businesses that sometimes became really big. And the, the easiest way to get into this stuff is to, like I said, go to a hackerspace and just have the mindset that you are open to the idea of becoming an entrepreneur and you're not going to rush yourself. You're not going to like drop out of school and be like, okay, I'm going to think of an idea now. You should think of an idea before you drop out of school. It's very important. Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> but, um, let me uh, let me ask you a question. We have um, we have a question from the chat room, and then we're going to take some calls. Uh, so callers, if you guys want to start calling in, and we're going to take this question from the chat. Um, what do you think about Bradley Manning and Julian Assange, heroes or villains? Okay, so um, Julian Assange and Bradley Manning uh, are part of the WikiLeaks movement. For anyone who's been under a rock, um, the WikiLeaks movement, for to some, is a villain because they think that you know you're exposing soldiers to the risk of being killed in combat if the enemy has any aid in their even morale boosting. Just just some people feel, understandably, especially when they have family that are in combat, that even giving the Taliban comfort or, or encouragement or, or, or positive publicity or even just criticizing the war is making it harder for the Americans to win there and for them to, to feel that their, their sacrifices will, will be successful in, in making something better for the Afghani people. Now, there's another point of view which says that even if it's inconvenient, and I myself have experienced the rather difficult um, process of, of having negative publicity, even if it's inconvenient, when you have people who say things that seem to harm something that you care about, like in my case, um, you know, Code Hero is a, a Kickstarter project, and I was slow in responding to my backers and letting them know about the progress that, that our latest build has been making, and that got people really worried that we were like bad guys and, or had abandoned the project or something. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into that too much before addressing your question, but there is a whole range of, of places where it feels like the press can do more harm than good. But there is such an important fundamental right involved in whistleblowing and press and, and freedom of information that even when it leads to people being harmed, and in my opinion, even, it's sort of like the Second Amendment right, you know, I believe that you having the ability to defend yourself if someone breaks into your house is more important than someone else's fear that someone might go and do a mass shooting, for instance. Because I think that there's, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who defend themselves every year, and every few years, a mass shooting. Um, so does that mean that guns being available uh, is going to make people safe all the time? No, there's going to be terrible tragedies involving guns. They're the most dangerous thing you can get your hands on. The worst people will try to get them to do the worst things. But in the case of Bradley Manning and Anonymous and WikiLeaks, this whole idea of having a kind of like a vigilante of, of, uh, of disclosure, um, I think that we wouldn't want to live in a world where that wasn't possible, even when we're really pissed off at the people that are doing it in ways that we don't like. And I, I'm for that freedom of speech, and I think that the Internet and, and whistleblowing is one of those things that, for everyone that you don't like the disclosure, there's another one that is uh, hugely beneficial. And I, to take a country like Iceland, they had a huge crisis where basically their government went berserk and had done some like fudged accounting and the economy was going to go down the tubes. And part of their pulling up out of the nosedive crash was getting a WikiLeak that exposed this fast enough for them to boot out the criminals and vote in a new government. And they passed a law a series of laws on freedom of information and whistleblowing and internet privacy, which was designed to make WikiLeaks-type things, um, you know, upheld and protected because it, it literally saved their country. So I, I hope that's not like dodging the, uh, you know, passing nope. judgment on them. But I, I just think that the fundamental right of disclosure is more important than uh, the fears that militaries have of, of harm. No, that's, that's, that's a great answer. I'm, I'm glad you addressed the uh, the issue with the Kickstarter because uh, I know that there was some contention with that uh, with your project, and it seems like by you saying that you believe in the whistleblowers, that kind of says that you know you know it sucks, but you still believe in them. So it's okay <laughs> they, they've done that. If, I, if, if I'm wrong, please correct me because that's what it sounds like, and that's a good thing that you said that. Yeah, I, because when you're on when you're on the the criticism end of people having a voice or, or you know, people mobilizing on the Internet in ways that you, you are, are suffering from, um, it sucks. But it is also a way of being held accountable. So in, in our case, you know, we had been too slow in posting updates and letting people know what we've been working on. And uh, releases of games take time, like more than a month between usually. And so our last release had been in, uh, I believe, September, 
and we're in December, so it had been more than a month, but certainly, you know, not an unusual time for a release take. But what people wanted was notification. They wanted they wanted transparency. They just wanted to see what was going on. And so that's what we need to provide people um, going forward is just like regular updates. We're working on an update. Hopefully we'll get out tomorrow or the next day. So you want to do one every month um, with, you know, pictures and screenshots and hopefully a new playable build of the newest version of Code Hero. Um, we have but, about 15 you know, minutes. Um, go ahead real quick. You know, there's, there is a, a level of, of power and influence that the hacker, you know, to go back to the, the classic hacker um, sort of vigilante has. And I would say that WikiLeaks is just one example of uh, and a huge explosion of things that uh, anonymous, I think, in a in a bigger sense, is the more the poster child for. Because WikiLeaks was just a couple of specific disclosures, whereas anonymous is like an, a never-ending, ongoing, sort of leaderless movement of of attacks on whatever a person who's in anonymous thinks is injustice. They can put it, sort of put on the the mask, so to speak, and take on the mantle. And it's kind of like the ending of, of V for Vendetta, the film or the, or the comic book, where Guy Fox, as a symbol, as a mask that, that V wears, is something that he himself can't live up to as a single person. And so it is the, it is the community's job to, to be able to put on that mantle and, and hack into bad guys and expose wrongdoing if they, if they feel that it needs to be done. Now, yeah. if, if you look at the power that we're going to have going forward, you know, as, as technologists and hackers, it's not as sexy, but it's equally important what people do in a, in a less controversial and less confrontational way with things like software development and game development because it's no less powerful. Um, arguably, things like the, the iPad or, or, you know, smartphones in general have done well, more to shape the way people experience the world and sort of stay informed about the world, even when they're not even at their home, not even sitting in front of a computer. Yeah, and so the difference between like public influence and actual uh, in motion, in work influence. You know, what you're talking about is like a anonymous or somebody like that, or past hackers would have been like faces to influence the masses. Whereas if you're talking about more doing things, getting things done. It's it's, it's to me, it's the more important part of it. You know. I exactly. think the face is great, so, but to actually do things is more important. Yeah, exactly. If if you think of the you know the the front line of the most controversial sides of the hacker as being kind of a an attention grabbing headline, but the real work kind of happens day to day when people make experiences that shape behavior. So like actually one of just to take an example, one of the biggest challenges WikiLeaks faced was uh, making an interface. I think it, I think it was WikiLeaks Anonymous was trying to make an interface so that people could actually analyze the data that came out of the leaks. Because putting a big zip file on the Internet with a bunch of data that no one can understand or have the time to go through didn't have as much of an impact as they expected. And what they had to figure out to do was, how do they change the experience of people when they're trying to look at this data so that they're empowered to do something with it? Well, if you take that basic problem and you point that at everything under the sun, how do you get into the right college? A friend of mine created a company that helped you figure out what college you should go to called MyFit. And, uh, you know, he's an incredibly successful entrepreneur um, because he made a technology that allowed people to figure out a big question they had, like how to go to the right school. If you're going into technology and you want to have a big impact, you could literally change the world just by giving people a better way to solve an important problem that they have and especially because of things like Facebook and social networking features, you have a unique ability now to write a few lines of code which will get like 100,000 people talking to each other and figuring something out. So I think that the, I, what I would suggest to people who are interested in, in getting into programming just as starting points, because I've, I've, we've talked a lot about like the big scope of things and the power that you have. I would suggest the best starting point to learn computer programming uh, depending on the age. So if you have kids or you're wondering how to introduce younger people, I would say Scratch is, is the most popular method for teaching really young kids. Um, and Minecraft is a game which is a really good way to get them interested in the kind of thinking that is involved in, in game development. 
Um, but if you're if you have kids who are done a little bit of that kind of stuff, or you yourself are an adult who wants to do real programming, Unity 3D uh, is a technology democratizing force in the world of game development and software development. And it was literally the missing piece, the engine that I was looking for for years. I had the idea for Kojiro for a long time before I found the engine that would, would be optimal to do it with. Yeah. And so all you need to do to start learning programming, kind of getting your, your feet wet in this stuff, is download Unity 3D. Um, you can also check out Code Hero, which is our game, which is still an alpha. So it's not a complete education, but it's a good way to get introduced to it. And that's at CodeHero.org. And the, the purpose of Code Hero is to introduce you to the technology, which is called Unity 3D. And it's a game engine where you can learn computer programming and make games. And the types of games you can make, you can write in JavaScript or C Sharp uh, primarily. There's also Boo, which is a Python-like language. Um, but I recommend beginners um, either go to C Sharp or JavaScript. And start by making one of the tutorials that you can find out there. And it's, to get back to the theme, we started talking about hackerspaces because I mentioned that there are these beginner projects that allow you to cut your teeth on creativity. And for me, when I was learning soldering, all my friends like make their own electronics, and you know, people like Mitch teach classes on that. I just wanted a name tag because I go to conferences a lot, and I wanted a way to be able to have a name tag. So they have these blinking LED name tags, and it took me about an hour to solder, and I, I feel a lot more com confident soldering after doing a really bad job of soldering my name tag and having to pull out a bunch of LEDs because I put them on backwards. Turns out diode means die as in two directions, and there's a wrong direction to solder them in. So having done that project, I feel, even though I'm not a, like a, a confident electronics person, I know how to solder things now. If you gave me a kit, I could follow it, and I could make something, or I could teach someone. So that's the spirit with which to get into programming, is pick your first project, follow some instructions. You don't have to use Code Hero. You could use any of the Unity tutorials out there. There's some really good videos by a group called Tornado Twins, for example, um, Unity3dstudent.com has really good, very short, uh, followable things. They're like 15, 20-minute long tutorials, which is nice. And if you go to a hackerspace or find some other uh, game jams, which are like a, a, a regular cycle of, of like sort of like a competition but much more cooperative where you form teams and you build games over a weekend, whatever you can do to get to hang out with and spend time around other programmers and geeks and game developers and build that first project, even if it's just like a very simple Tetris clone or Kong or something like that, you will find at the end of that project that you can see a whole new avenue for your life. That, that is just a stepping stone. And that stepping stone is the most important because the first one is what gets you moving. And a lot of people feel kind of stuck where they're at in life, but they're, they're picking up the programming manuals and books and tutorials and games, and they're starting. And... Uh, that's, that's where it leads is, you know, into beyond that first project and into being able to maybe start a company or create a cool game or use it in combination with other talents you have, you know, creative writing, art, other things like that, and find a, a, a niche for yourself to be creative. Alex, we have about, um, I'm, uh, I'd, I'd like to interject something in here um, that, you know, I've been listening this whole time, and people in the chat room are, are loving all this information. Um, and thank you. Your, your your way of thinking is revolutionary. I love in Code Hero that you teach people to teach. And, you know, STEM learning is just, I'm sorry, I thought it was boring back in the day. If I would have had something like this now, I think it's fascinating. So thanks to Code Hero, you know, it's all of that, the technology, engineering. Is, uh, wow, if, if I had that when I was a child, you know, um, so thank you. As someone who has children, I you know, Code Hero is something I'd really like to get them into. So yeah, thank you for about, that. We're in about six minutes. Uh, we would just, just want to thank you for being on the show, Alex. Uh, we need to launch into the next part. But, yeah, thanks again, man. You, some really cool thanks, stuff Tom. here. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled. I want to put out there one thing, too, which is you mentioned STEM, and for anyone who doesn't know, science, technology, engineering, and math, is like the thing DARPA wants to give money to for schools to be better at teaching technology because that's where you get engineers that make technology that win wars, right? So right. there's a new acronym called STEAM or, or TEAMS, which is Science, Technology, Engineering, Art, and Mathematics and Science. And that art is, the, the, I think, the, the breath of humanity, which making a video game represents because 
it's a way to combine writing and art and storytelling and music and sound and all the, the arts with the use of the technology and the code. And um, we have, uh, if, we, if we get STEAM education going, that's getting back to a renaissance human being. I think it'll bring all of the arts and sciences into more focus for people if they use them in combination instead of separately. We have a page up that if you want to uh, give, give us any links to, to advertise or any extra thoughts, you can put that on the show. Right now, uh, like I said, we need to thank you and take calls for the, the game and then actually sign on the show because we have about a little over four minutes. Um, Great. So, again, Alex, thank you. If you want to stick around and listen to this crazy hijinks for the next four minutes, you're absolutely more than welcome to. We got links up on the page. Excellent. Uh, we're going to play the noise one more time, and thank you, Alex, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's a crazy noise. Any callers, this is the time. Call in. Um, if you call in, you can win uh, a line from either me or Rock. You can write whatever you want. We'll read it online or on the show, um, which is evidenced by the crazy Barbie girl lyrics that we read earlier in the show. Uh, I don't know if this is a caller for Alex or for the for the uh, the show or for the game, but we're going to take it. Three four seven. What's up? Hello, caller. You're online. Hello? Hi there. Hello. You've got a couple of minutes. Do you know the answer to Is this for Alex or is this for the game the game part of the show? Okay. <laughs> I don't think okay, we have that call either anymore. Yeah, we're dropping the call. Um, okay. Again, if you guys, anyone, anyone wants to call for, um, to, to guess the, uh, the answer to the game show, we have about three minutes left. Um and I just wanted to actually run through a few ideas that I had for creativity. Um, just real quick, creativity is is one of the things that the NYI used to draw public attention to issues not being addressed. Like um, last year, there were some some problems in the West Village, and we uh, obviously we have used the superhero thing in the past, which is something that we've been dropping lately because of its connections to some other people. But um, we use the creativity as a weird factor to draw the media to the West Village muggings. Uh, which it did, and then the police reacted pretty quickly once they were kind of embarrassed into it. So that's just one of the things that we can use creativity for is, you know, kind of breaking out of the box in in certain areas that haven't really thought out of the box before. Uh, Alex said something about, um, you know, being bigger than something else by wearing the Guy Fawkes mask. That's kind of why we founded the Initiative Collective, because it's kind of a thing where, we can all live up to this idea of the initiative and, you know, this, this idea of mutual respect for people that we work with. So that's that's where creativity comes in, in there. Um, unfortunately, real quick, negative effect of creativity, we're starting to feel that now because as a culture that promotes and glorifies negativity, um, the effects have caused a feedback effect that is summed up by the idea of supply and demand. Uh, people want what's flashy and easy and things it can live vicariously through, but eventually the culture becomes so immersed that what the previous generation escaped into, the next generation is influenced by during the formative years. That means all the things that we, you know, were having fun with in the last generation, the next generation grows up with this stuff and thinks that that's just part of the course and it's a little dangerous. Uh, what do you guys think about that in the last minute 20? Well, one thing I, I would like to respond to is, you know, video game violence has been a big issue uh, that is brought up every single time there's a shooting, and people want to know what is to blame, you know, what is causing crime, how do we deal with crime, especially the crazy kind. And, um, you know, I, I, as a video game developer and a longtime fan of, you know, lots of games where you shoot stuff. One minute. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I always come to the defense of gamers and, and, and video games and say, hey, you know, the majority of gaming – it does not lead to any kind of violence or whatever. But I did play a game, uh, or I, I watched a video of uh, a little bit of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, and there's an infamous scene, if you Google it, called No Russian, N-O-R-U-S-S-I-A-N. It's a pun because a bunch of Russian mercenaries that go and shoot up an airport to try to make it look like Americans did it. And, uh, you know, when we use a powerful medium like gaming and we have this incredible voice, it's tempting to do the coolest, flashiest, most ridiculous thing and call it 20 seconds. Love that. 
But we have a huge responsibility. Just like scientists have to expose lies and tell the truth, as artists, we have to um, expose mistakes and encourage aspirations. Alex, I, so I'm, I'm sorry, i got to cut you off. We have five away. seconds in the show. If you want to add anything, just put it on our page. Thanks. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we have to have some kind of like sign that we can give. <laughs>